be, once again, Charlotte Chapel in this pulpit, where I have been uh, an infrequent visitor, I think, for more than 30 years. Uh, this uh, church is very special to me personally because, among other things, uh, it was a place where my parents were married back in 1928 during the Dr. Graham Scorogi era. And it's been a joy over the years to renew fellowship with many good friends uh, here. When I began the service this morning, I tried just to indicate various purposes that bring us together. And the first, you may remember, uh, was noting that we have come together in the presence of God uh, that we might bring him our worship and adoration. Worship, the great fundamental, really, of Christian discipleship and experience and certainly of the corporate life of any congregation. Uh, Paul in Ephesians actually defines Christians in terms of worship. You may recall the words. We are those, he says, we Christians who worship God through the Holy Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in human merit. We are those who worship God. I want to think with you about this great theme this morning on the basis of one of the great New Testament passages dealing with worship. Uh, Alison just read it for us from Hebrews chapter 12, particularly verses 22 through 24. Maybe helpful to have your New Testament open there and follow with me as we expound it. Uh, verses 18 to 21 are a sort of backdrop that we will allude to in, in just a moment. Uh, worship. Now, I understand you've been doing a series here in uh, uh, Hebrews, and so the Charlotte Chapel folk know all about this letter, but we wanted to visit us, so let's just go into the background for a, just a moment or two. This is the classic writing in the New Testament for discouraged disciples. The writer, the people addressed are Hebrews, that's to say they've brought, been brought up in Judaism, the Old Testament faith, in its first century form, and uh, they had somewhere along the way heard the good news that the Messiah had come, the one promised way back to Abraham had at last appeared for the blessing of the nations. Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah of God, and they believed in him. In chapter 2, actually, there's some indication that it was in rather special circumstances, for some of them at least, uh, they'd heard the message actually from the original apostles. It's just possible that some of these recipients of this letter had actually been at Pentecost. Been swept into the kingdom of God in that glorious outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, with which the church was birthed. All that was decades ago. In these early days, there had been high, heady dreams that, <laughs> that uh, Judaism would come to recognize, generally, that, that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and, and so Christianity as well would, would be seen as a great fulfillment of all of that religious tradition and history. And uh, Judaism merged into its fulfillment in Christianity. A great dream, but unfortunately, the decades that had passed that underlined uh, how impossible that was. Synagogue and church had pulled apart. And here we are, perhaps in the 50s, many scholars think of the first century, somewhere around then, uh, and already there's a whiff of persecution in the air. And many of these Hebrews are beginning to wonder about their commitment to Christ and to Christianity and begin to look back on what they had left and wondering whether they shouldn't perhaps make their way back into Judaism. And one of their areas of concern was, was worship. And that's why the writer deals with it precisely here. And does it in a sort of contrast with what they had had before and tries to open to them the wonders of Christian worship. And that was necessary because they were probably harking back to the days when they had gone up to Jerusalem and, and shared in the great festivals at the temple. 
And uh, contemporary uh, sources tell us that there were often hundreds of thousands of worshippers. You can see the great temple, its magnificent structure, packed with worshippers, and, 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 and the soaring singing of the choirs, and the, the blasts of trumpets, and, and music, and sound, and the rich, colourful vestments of the high priest and his colleagues, and, and the pungent smell of the incense. And at the height of the worship, there would be uh, live animals dragged to the altar and slain, and the blood spilled. Oh! What worship? What do they have now? Perhaps just a handful of them. Meeting in someone's lounge. Some backstair uh, of the empire. Some long forgotten corner. And what do they have in their worship? Well, perhaps a few readings from the Old Testament. Maybe some sayings of Jesus that were circulating. Uh, a few hymns. A brother to say a few words from the scripture. Uh, and then breaking bread together. And that was it. Was this it, you see? Was this the full moment of all these promises to Abraham down the ages? And some have begun to wonder, what's the point? And actually, we're told in chapter 10 that some had stopped coming to church. And the writer says, wait a minute, let me tell you about the wonders of Christian worship. And maybe we need to hear that ourselves this morning. Maybe I am as we come together. Let, let's remind ourselves of what these are. And so we're looking especially at verses 23 to 24 there. And uh, first this, and I've got four. Uh, the first is that we have come. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? It's we come to worship. We have come to spiritual reality. Look at verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You see, they went up to earthly Jerusalem before, and they could remember that so vividly. But earthly Jerusalem is only a city, and ultimately it too will decay and crumble into dust. But here, says the writer, in Christian worship, you come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the very dwelling place of God through the Spirit. And not just, you know, maybe three times a year for these festivals, but every single Sunday as you come into the very dwelling place, the home of God Himself spiritual reality. And uh, we need that, don't we? Jesus reminded us of us. Remember he says, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust please break, break in that all can decay. Rather, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Don't labor for the things that perish but the things that endure for eternal life. Trying to restore that sense of, 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 of priority and recognize that the reality is bigger than the material. And we need that because so many messages bombard us every day in our culture. The, the things that you can touch and see and feel are real. And, and, and that's uh, obviously the way that these Hebrews were being drawn. Uh, the account of the Old Testament worship and its initiation at Mount Sinai, which is contained in verses 18 to 21, is, is full, you'll notice, of reference to, uh, to sensory experience. See what they had? A mountain that can be touched was burning with fire, darkness, gloom, storm, a trumpet blast, and, and then touching again a little later on. It was all uh, appealing to the senses, in a sense. But we come to a worship that transcends the material. And though there are so many witnesses around us, but reality is bigger than material things. Creation itself, the scriptures are clear. Paul in Romans 1, the psalmist, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's glory revealed in the creation. And uh, science today has been ambiguous on that, but some are beginning to recognize that. 
I don't know if you know the philosophical establishment on both sides of the Atlantic was, was shaken a few months ago when Professor Anthony Flew came out uh, affirming uh, what seems like a, a faith in God. And that's remarkable because uh, Flew is one of these uh, great bogeymen that sort of uh, parades up and down uh, the walls uh, and the halls of philosophical discussions. When I studied philosophy years ago in St. Andrews University, he was one of these threatening figures who was constantly challenging my faith and my belief in God. And now he's acknowledging that the evidence for the emergence of life, I quote him, uh, the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life shows that intelligence must have been involved. Wow! Witness to something more than matter. And there are lots of other witnesses. Take beauty, for example. How do you reduce beauty to matter? Or there's that inner voice of conscience. Uh, where does that come from? Or, or, or that mysterious sense of the self. Or human love. How do you quantify love? Or Jesus Christ himself. How can you explain him in purely human terms? His life, his ministry, his miracles, his character, his teaching. And above all, perhaps his resurrection from the dead, which is overwhelmingly historically attested. No, no. Reality is bigger than the material. We come to be reminded of that this morning, spiritual reality. And there are two other indicators of that in the passage here. Uh, you see, he says, we have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to thousands upon thousands of angels. Wow. And the phrase actually in the Greek literally means an innumerable company of angels. Charlotte Chapel is absolutely packed this morning. Not just with the people here, with a thankful good congregation. But it wouldn't matter if it was half empty humanly, it would be still full. There are unseen presences here. As we gather in worship in Jesus' name, angels are present, the writer says. Uh, the Hebrews were tempted to, to go back to that Old Testament context uh, where there was a tradition that angels were present when the law was given on Sinai, referred to in verses 18 following. Uh, but the writer said, we've got something far better than that. <laughs> Not as a few angels, maybe once in a while on a mountaintop. We have angels in innumerable numbers. Every time we gather, the church is absolutely full this morning. And they're here, apparently, in joyful assembly. In other words, they're celebrating. They're worshipping. You see, there's a sense in which we sometimes when we begin a, a, a service in this church or other churches, I've done it, others do, we say, we will begin worship with this song or that song. But you know, you cannot do that. It's impossible. You never, ever begin worship. We only join worship. The ceaseless worship of all the denizens of heaven in the presence of God, we, we joined it. What an encouragement that is actually sometimes in our private devotional times. You know, when you get up in the morning and, and you have a time with your scripture there and you offer some prayers and, and if you're like me, sometimes you begin to wonder, hey, what's all this about? And I seem just this one person on their own and does it really matter? And what significance does it have? And we feel so isolated, so lonely. Oh, remind yourself, you are joining worship. Taken up into the whole response to God through all his levels of creation. And so innumerable angels are here this morning. And something else at the end of verse 23, you see, another dimension of this spiritual reality. You have come, he says, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The church of Jesus Christ is in two parts. There's the church militant here on earth and the church triumphant in heaven. And we are in Christ... 
And they are in Christ. So they can't be too far away, can they? And in a sense, as we gather and worship, the writer says, you see, there is a, a meeting. It's as if the veil quivers. Oh, blessed communion, fellowship divine. We feebly struggle, they in glory shine. But all are one in thee, for all are thine. Hallelujah. And that's something perhaps especially for those who are struggling with the, the, the deep, dark experience of losing someone you love. And the utter loneliness that engulfs us and we walk and walk alone. And long for that touch of the vanished hand, the sound of the voice that is still. But oh, here is a response to that. As a pastor, I used to say again and again to folk in such circumstances, when you can find the courage, don't stay away from church. Find the courage to come back again because, you know, you'll never, ever be nearer to the one you've loved than, than, than here as you gather with the people of God in worship. One church, one people. Spiritual reality. And that's what we've come to. And there's the first wonder of worship. Unseen presences. Spiritual reality. Here's the second wonder that the writer has for us. He says, uh, you have come, verse 23, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. The church of the firstborn is the, first church, uh, is the church of Jesus, the first to be reborn from the dead. It's a phrase used elsewhere in New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. And a reminder of, of, of the church. The church of those who are raised from the dead with Christ. And of course that is all the people of God in every place. It's what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Uh, all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's talking about the, the global church. So here's the second dimension. A second wonder. We have come not just to spiritual reality. We have come to a global family. A family spread through the nations. Well, that was true in the first century. And uh, these Hebrews needed to hear that because they were perhaps a bit discouraged because only a few folk came out maybe to their meeting, wherever they were in the, in the empire. Uh, but the writer is saying, to Luke, you're part of something far bigger than that. The whole family of God spread right across the uh, empire. And wherever the gospel is penetrated, we're all one in the one Holy Spirit who unites us. And oh, what a family today. Of, of a global population, some six billion, about two billion claim some kind of adherence to Jesus Christ. It's been my privilege in the last five years since resigning my pastor in Vancouver to travel in all the continents of the world in, in the service of Christ. And, and it's a thrilling story. I know it doesn't hit the headlines in the secular press, but they'll never pick it up really probably. But, but out there, great things are happening. The church is growing around the world. Yes, there are problems. Of course, there always will be. But the church is advancing. Uh, Philip Jenkins, in his book, The Next Christendom, details it all. And there, and I quote him, that uh, even on conservative projections, by 2025, the Christian population in the world will be some 2.6 billion, making Christianity, and I quote him, by far, by far, the largest faith in the world. 
We're part of that this morning. Well, let me capture it in an image, which I know has been used in this church some time ago, but we'll have another go at it because it bears repeating in many our news this morning. Think of the Mexican wave. You've been watching the World Cup, perhaps, and uh, sometimes the games are a bit boring and people are a bit fed up. And, and then suddenly, a section of the spectators, remember, leaps to their feet and throws their arms in the air, and the Mexican wave has begun. And then the next section do it. And the next, and the next was all around the stadium. Sometimes maybe twice, even three times. It's far more fun than what's going on in the pitch. And uh, we do it a lot in North America, Mexican wave. Now I want to say to you, listen, there is a Mexican wave of worship that goes round the world every Sunday. We're right in the middle of it in this moment. It started when you and I were watching television late last night, maybe watching the news, uh, and uh, where some pastors in this area were staggering out of their studies. <laughs> and uh, way down there in West Samoa, uh, the Christian kingdom of Tonga down in the South Pacific, it's Sunday morning, and, and, and the Christians were, were, were going with their Bible to their churches, lots of Christians down there and they were called to worship and, and to praise the Lord Christ and the triune God and as they did in a sense they threw their hands in the air and they got to their feet some literally, others metaphorically but the, the wave was begun at the same moment exactly the same moment, away to the north the further eastern uh, reaches of the old Soviet Union, uh, there other bu- bunches of Christians, not so many but, but they're also with this faith and they have this, this worship and, and, and the wave has begun and it sweeps down the coast of, of Asia, down into Japan, it's on into the Philippines, Indonesia, across into Korea. Meanwhile, it's spreading across the South Pacific, into New Zealand and across uh, Australia, time zone after time zone. And now millions are on their feet and the wave is going on into China. How many Christians in China today? Only God knows. Perhaps, perhaps there was a hundred million. Province after province, the wave is going on. It's across North Asia. It's coming through India. It's into the Middle East now. Little handfuls of believers, persecuted, struggling, but, but they're on their feet too. And the wave is moving through. And now it's into Africa, down that east coast. The old churches there of Egypt and Ethiopia. Down in the burgeoning churches of, of Uganda and Kenya. Across and up the west coast. Nigeria likewise. Cameroon, Ghana. All these great churches. Little groups, large groups. They're on their feet. The wave is moving on. It's into Europe meanwhile. The Mediterranean lands, the Scandinavian lands, Central Europe. And it's here. It's in, it's in Britain. It's sweeping through these islands. The worship way. People are on their feet. All around Britain today, at this very moment, worshipping the Lord. Crying, Jesus is Lord. Adoring the living God. The worship way. And that's a cross from us. Over the Atlantic, Iceland, Greenland, into Newfoundland. The edge of Canada, North America. And that great bulge of Brazil to the south. Great worship there. People are excited. So many have come to Christ in the last while. Down in Argentina, up the west coast it's going. Central America, so many new Christians there. The Caribbean is going with a beat, you see. The worship wave is moving on. Right across the Midwest, across the prairies, into the western provinces. It's coming up California, and Oregon, and Washington. And us lazy lot in Vancouver, we're on our feet. We're out to the churches, we're praising the Lord. And then from us it's up to Alaska, across to Hawaii, and it's done for another week. Now, I have done nothing in the last few minutes than describe something. I've not created anything. That happens every Sunday. I mean, how could anybody stay in bed? We are part of a worship wave all around the world. And that's what worship is about. A global family. There's the second wonder. Here's the third what we had, a spiritual reality, a global family, and thirdly, an awesome deity. You have come, verse 23, to God, the judge of all people. You've come to God. 
God the judge. That's awesome. God, in a sense, upon his judgment throne. You get intimations of that in the book of Revelation. Remember, John, I'm in the spirit in the Lord's day, and I, I saw a throne in heaven, he says, and one seated upon it. And there's all the description of, of, of rainbows around the throne and, and a sea of glass. And, and there are the living creatures and others, and, and they're singing constantly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The awesome majesty, indescribable, really, of the, of the living God. And we have come to that this morning. Remember Jacob as he flees from his brother Esau and then uh, Genesis 28 and he comes to Bethel, remember, and sets up that pillar there and, and then there's that, that dream <laughs> and he wakes and he says, surely God is in this place and I, I didn't realize it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This place. God is in this place. God himself is, is here. I wonder if we reflect that adequately as we gather. Annie Dillard, the American writer, in her sparkling prose, asks us all a question. She says, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible to the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The church is like children praying on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers, signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may take us to where we can never return. Overstated, and yet, and yet, I wonder, is God the true God here? Yes, the awesome deity. Now, there's a little girl whose uh, dad was an atheist and uh, his father, her father was rather proud of that and wanted the whole world to know that he was not a believer in God and, and uh, that was that. And so he had a little plaque made with three words on it. God is nowhere. He put it up on his mantel shelf. And his wee girl went to school and she began to learn to read, of course, as they do there. And uh, when she came home, she thought she'd try out what she'd learned and she saw some words on the mantelpiece and so she sort of tried to get all days now. Oh, Daddy, she says, it says God is now here. <laughs> you know, that's a, a true story, apparently. And the little child's proclamation uh, touched the father. He began to think again. It took a process, took time. But eventually he became a believer in God. And what he did was he, he, he took down his little message and, and, and he cut it where it literally read it and put it back up. And dismissed nonsense and replaced it with truth. God is now here. <laughs> Carl Barton, a great passage, uh, talks about God and argues that we actually never really use the word God properly if we use it in the third person only. God, he says, is evocative. You can only really focus God when you focus him in the second person, which means 
God is not so much who he is. Him, he. God is who thou art. Who you are, O my God. We only truly express and relate to God in prayer. Acknowledging that he is here. Remember a theologian talking about some theological students he had talking about God. He said they knew everything about God except one thing. That God was listening to them. The God who is here. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Third wonder of worship. We have come to an awesome deity. And lastly, we have come to a priestly ministry. And that's verse 24. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To Jesus, that's his human name. And that's very deliberate in this letter. You know, the strong stress throughout it on, on the humanness of Jesus. And it talks of him here uh, as, as, as the mediator. The one between God and humanity. Reaching up, in a sense, with one hand to God and the other hand to us. And, and, and bringing us together in himself. The one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. And so he is there, in a sense, in the presence, in the heart of God. God is always Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that second person is also human. <laughs> That's the whole point of the empty tomb, isn't it? Not just to demonstrate that Christ had conquered death, it certainly does, but the empty tomb means he has taken up his body. His whole humanity goes up, in a sense, into Godhead, in the mystery of it all. And that means we come to God this morning, a God with a human heart. A God who empathizes and understands and can sympathize. And if you're in pain this morning and struggling with some deep, dark reality, here is a God who understands and can share it with you. But it's not just that ministry of, 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 of empathy. Uh, the, 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 the priestly ministry of Jesus, this is how the, the Hebrews develops it, our great high priest who sympathizes, uh, but it's uh, also what he offers for us. And, uh, and that's at the end of the verse there. This, this priest has an offering. And what is his offering? It is himself. And it's drawn to us uh, in terms of a contrast uh, out of the, the story in Genesis 4. And you've had allusion to that, I expect, in chapter 11 as you studied there on Abel. Remember the story of the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and how uh, Cain's uh, sacrifice was rejected. And, and in a fit of, of blazing jealousy, he slays his brother Abel, buries him in the ground. Where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, says God. And what does the blood of Abel cry? It cries surely for, for vengeance, for justice, for the punishment of the murderer. And my name is Cain, and so is yours. God calls us in his word to love our neighbor as ourselves. Everyone who enters our life in the intimacies of family and the immediate connections right through to the casual contacts every day, we're to love our neighbor. But we don't, most of the time. In a sense, we reject them rather than accept them. We criticize rather than affirm. We slander even, misrepresent. Even hatred can sometimes arise. And the blood of our neighbor 
cries out from the ground for, for vengeance on us. <laughs> Is there any hope? In the presence of this holy God, as the hymn writer puts it, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my native spirit bear the uncreated beam? There is a way for us to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, and advocate with God. There is a way, there is a way. Because as well as the blood of of Abel, there is other blood. The blood of Jesus, our mediator. And that blood too has a voice. A wonderful voice. A glorious voice. It echoes through the ages and around the world. It echoes today as we gather in worship here in this church. And that voice contradicts, overcomes, drowns out, and finally silences the voice of the blood of Abel. Rotti catches it wonderfully in a great verse of one of his hymns. O oh, oh love, thou bottomless abyss, my sin is swallowed up in thee, covered is my unrighteousness, nor spot of guilt remains on me, while Jesus' blood through earth and sky, mercy, free, boundless mercy cries. The blood of Jesus. At that last supper, remember, He's the mediator of the new covenant and he took, remember, the loaf and he took the, the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. And so we come, what a wonder is this of worship. We come to that altar of sacrifice. We come again, as it were, to Calvary in all our guilt and shame and need and, and, and we receive his mercy. We rest again in our great substitute, Jesus, who bears our sin for us. And the punishment due us is taken by him. And we are pardoned and set free. And ongoingly, as John puts it in his first letter, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, goes on and on and on, cleansing us from all sin. I wonder if you experienced that. I'm talking to someone this morning. With a burden of guilt in your heart and longing for that release, you can have it now. Look to him. Reach out to him. Call upon him. Ask him for his mercy. And you can go forth from the service today with, with Jesus' words ringing in your ears. My son, my daughter, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. But there's another dimension to this just as I finish. The high priest, not just... Uh, in a sense, the, the one who makes an offering, but he's also the one who is an intercessor, who, who prays for those he represents. And, and so Christ has intercession for us. Let me come at it this way. Among the sins that we are forgiven as we come again and trust in, in Jesus for us, among the sins are the sins of our worship. Because our worship is always flawed. Affected by our fallenness in all kinds of ways. So often our, our response to God is, 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 is so tepid, so lukewarm, isn't it? We, we lack a zeal that is appropriate to God, an ardor of response to Him. Yes, we make allowance for personality and some folk are more exuberant by nature than others and that's all right. But all of us need to surely show something of that ardor. That, that zeal for God, that love for Him in response to all that He's done for us. And so often, our response is so tepid. 
Uh, we're distracted. We're thinking about all sorts of other things in a worship service like this. Unbelief struggles against belief. And then there are our attitudes which are often so inadequate. And, and there's not that sense of, of community. You see, worship in the scripture is not an individual thing as we sit in our little boxes, as it were, all over this church. It's a communal thing as we join together as a family of God and, and in love for one another present our common, united worship to him. But so often we sit in our boxes and, and are not open to those around us. And, and so our worship is in so many ways inadequate and flawed. But the wonderful good news is, you see, because we have our mediator, our great high priest in the presence of God, he takes our worship in all its inadequacy and, and he cleanses it and he purges it and he renews it and he transforms it and he presents it perfected to the Father on our behalf. This is how Calvin puts it in one place, quoting from the great early father, An, uh, Ans, uh, oh, the great uh, early father, uh, oh, I forget his name, doesn't matter. This is what he says. He says, uh, he comes to us, Jesus, as our eternal mediator and advocate. He comes to stand in for us in the presence of the Father. He comes to us as the one who takes our place. He is therefore our eye through which we see the Father. He is our mouth through which we speak to the Father. He is our right hand through which we offer ourselves to the Father. Unless he intercedes, there is no intercourse with God either for us or for all saints. Isn't that beautiful? You see, in our worship, and this is the last one and it's the most wonderful one, we are not thrown back upon ourselves and our inadequate responses. But these responses are taken and healed and perfected and presented on our behalf. And so you see, worship in the end is a happy thing, a joyous thing, a thing shot through with fulfillment and even achievement. And you and I can go down from Charlotte Chapel this morning with a song in our heart and a spring in our step. And we can say, I have been to the mountain of God. And I have climbed the holy hill of God. And I have stood in his holy presence. And I have gazed upon the face of God. And I have offered worship today. Worship that he through Jesus Christ has accepted. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. And so, the wonders of worship. Spiritual reality. You have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to countless angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Spiritual reality. We have come to a global family. Remember the Mexican way all around the world. The church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And you've come, thirdly, to this awesome deity. God is in this place. You've come to God, the judge of all. And finally, you've come to this spiritual ministry. This priestly mediator, Jesus Christ, through whom all our sin is forgiven. And all our worship and in our inadequacy is presented to the Father for us. 
we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word of the blood of Abel. Let us pray.